When I first moved to the Florida Panhandle in 2005, I was working for Habitat for Humanity of Walton County, and it was customary for me during those days on Sundays to go to church to talk about the work that we were doing to provide affordable partnership housing to those who were in need. And sometimes I would go and they'd give me five minutes and I'd do a little commercial and sometimes I would go and they say, oh, you used to do this all the time, just take the whole preaching time. I kind of preferred the commercial, but uh, less work. But on one such occasion, I traveled to the First United Methodist Church of Defuniac Springs, Florida. And uh, at that time, Reverend Ken Autry was the pastor there, and it was a five-minute Sunday for me, which was great. I did my commercial, and I sat down, and Pastor Autry gave the sermon. I don't know Pastor Autry personally, but I have never forgotten his sermon that day. It was a sermon about Jesus. It was a sermon about how we all see Jesus our own way, about how we use Jesus the way that we want Him to be used. And it's always been like this. Jesus takes on the form we require of Him. The zealots of Jesus' own time wanted Him to be an insurgent with a sword in His hand. The legalists tried desperately hard to make Him a traditionalist. The anxious masses and those closest to Him attempted to make Him a welfare king. And even the devil got in on the act, if we are to believe the Gospels, he tempted Jesus to seize economic, religious, and political power for himself. For if your end goal is so noble, the tempter seemed to say, then use whatever means is necessary to get there. Jesus rejected all such efforts. In fact, Jesus' eventual crucifixion was due largely to the fact that he would not play by the rules. He broke the rules. He would not be the kind of Messiah that people thought He should be. And we continue this tradition even today. If needed, we will wrap Jesus up in the red, white, and blue and send Him out there looking more like George Washington than a Jewish rabbi. We will use His words, if necessary, to justify greed. We will explain away His hardest sayings in order that we can remain comfortable with Him. We'll even name drop in November if it means getting a few more votes. It is an endless exercise, and it has always been this way. Back to Reverend Autry's sermon. He spoke about a letter that an angry parishioner had written to him. (laughs) I don't know about such things. This person had registered all of his complaints about what Pastor Autry was doing wrong. And then he ended his letter like this, the part I'll never forget. I pray that you will come to know Jesus as I know Jesus, rather than knowing Jesus like you know Jesus. I pray that you will come to know Jesus as I know Jesus, rather than knowing Jesus like you know Jesus. Do we really know Jesus? It's hard to say. 
Certainly the Jesus who walked the Palestinian hills of the first century was a far cry from how he is often portrayed. So we might not know that Jesus. He had the calloused hands of a working man. The olive skin, the dark features of a Middle Easterner. Shaggy hair, dirty feet, the tattered clothes of a poor wandering peasant. He is nothing like the white, middle-class, blue-eyed Jesus that appeared on my Sunday school flannel board during Sunday school each week. He is not the clean, halo-embossed Jesus in my Bible stories that live book series. Jesus was rugged. He was a revolutionary. Jesus was a little dangerous to be around. When I think of Jesus preaching, teaching, and healing, and traveling Roman Palestine in the first century... I think of a line by C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, specifically the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I had the great pleasure when I was in the seventh grade, in a different time, in a different place, my seventh grade English teacher for an entire semester would end each class by reading a portion of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia until the entire series was read. And that has made an impression on me my entire life. If your young children or young grandchildren have never read those books, Buy them for those children. And if they will not read them themselves, read them to them and make them sit there without a cell phone or an iPad while you do it. Can I get an amen? What was I saying? Oh yeah. The animals of Narnia are preparing to introduce the children who are from Great Britain to Aslan, the lion, for the first time. Aslan, in C.S. Lewis's work, is the symbolic Jesus in those fantasy novels. And one of the children, her name is Susan, is surprised and says, I thought Aslan was a man. I feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And then the question, Susan asks, is he safe? To which one of the animals answers, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good, and he is the king. Whoever or whatever Jesus is, he is not safe. He is not predictable. He will not be constrained to fit our conceptions or our cultural conclusions about him. He is always doing something crazy, like telling us to love our enemies telling us to turn the other cheek, to do good to those who don't deserve it, to take up and carry the instrument of our very own crucifixion. He is the most written about, most studied, most iconic figure of human history, and still He eludes us. With billions of pages written, billions of followers, we struggle with who He is, who He was, and what it means to be in His camp or on His side. Jesus asked His disciples on His last night on earth, Do you not yet know who I am, even after all this time? And our answer still today is an unsteady, no, we're not quite sure. But that's what the life of faith is about. We haven't arrived. We are in pursuit. We aren't settlers for Jesus. We are followers of Jesus. It is not meant for us to be completely in the know but to continue to know, to learn, to become disciples. Paraphrasing what Paul said to the Philippians, 
I'm not saying that I have arrived or that I have reached perfection, but I press on to possess Jesus Christ. I have not yet achieved it, but this one thing I do, looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on. The pressing on is the life of faith. And it's what sparked this Wednesday evening Bible study that I began this past week on the life of Jesus. It will last for eight weeks, and so will this series of talks that I'm doing on Sunday morning to accompany that series. We are diving into the Gospels, not to discover a new interpretation about Jesus or to cobble together some new take on a well-worn story, but to find the old, to find the ancient. The aim is to see with fresh and surprised eyes Jesus of Nazareth, what He said, what He did, the time and frame of reference that surrounded Him, doing not so much the business with what the church has said about Jesus, but letting Jesus speak and act for Himself. By understanding how He was understood in His own day, we can understand Him better today. I'll repeat that. By understanding how He was understood in His own day, we can understand Him better today. And we know that we have begun to understand Him when we are shocked by what we find. Because Jesus will shock us. He is good. He is the King. But nobody said anything about Him being safe. And that's the intent of the Gospels. To shock us into belief, as it were. To surprise us with this revolutionary man of integrity and honesty and power and sacrifice to elicit a response from us to believe. To believe that Jesus is in fact the One, the Son of God. In our Scripture reading this morning, that's exactly what John, the author of the fourth Gospel, wants. Repeating a few lines, You believe because you have seen Me, He said to His disciples. Blessed are those who believe Without seeing me, these things are written so that you may continue to believe. I said Wednesday night, and I've said it here before on Sundays, that if you want a real grasp of what the Gospels are, they are holy propaganda. That is what they are. John is the master craftsman of the form. Now, what is propaganda? Well, we see it a lot. It is information, basically. It is words. It is pictures, images that are intentionally fashioned and put together to make a reader or receiver of that information to believe something, to see things from a particular point of view. Propaganda is always biased. It is not fair and balanced. There is no such thing these days, it seems, of fair and balanced. Propaganda has an angle, and it is working that angle. It can be a negative thing, scapegoating groups of people, inciting fear, bought and paid for misinformation, dispersed by gossips and bots and trolls and sowing discord. Propaganda is often the means of causing trouble. But propaganda can be quite positive, and you have all been subjected to positive propaganda that has changed your life. Did you know that? Buckle your seatbelt. Don't text and drive. 
Uncle Sam. Rosie the Riveter. We can do it. All of those are examples of positive propaganda to try to get a group of people to believe something and to behave accordingly. And of course, propaganda is the main advertising tool of American capitalism. You need, need, need the new iPhone XS. You need it. You need it. That's what my kids tell me. A diamond is forever. How many diamonds have been bought with that flashing on a wall behind the counter? You deserve a break today. All of this, whether it's negative or positive or whether it's an advertisement, all of this is intended to make you believe something and to act on it. Back to John. John is the master. John is not objective. He is a believer. John is biased. He is grinding an axe. He is proving a point. So I don't use this word propaganda in a negative at all, but as an act of intentionality. None of the gospel writers are primarily concerned with giving us historical facts. They aren't writing curriculum for the ancient Near East civilizations. They are writing to draw out a response from us. They want us to believe that Jesus is in fact the Son of the living God. And that's why they write the way they do. He is this wild-eyed Jewish rabbi. This Galilean hillbilly from a rebellious town called Nazareth. This controversial firebrand of a man. A man who was a thorn in the side of the political, social, and religious complex of his day. This mystic and mysterious magician who offended many but loved all. This is the one they call us to believe. I sure hope you noticed the lyrics of the song we sang a few minutes ago. If I Was Jesus. It was written by Chuck Cannon and Phil Madera. Chuck has written scores of songs over the years for country performers. Some are very big hits. But he is a South Carolinian. I couldn't say it in the first service and can't say it in the second. South Carolinian. Whose daddy was a Pentecostal preacher. He heard about Jesus a lot. And his writing partner... Phil is a prolific songwriter and has written for everyone from Alison Krauss to Keb Moe. He was a pioneer in the contemporary Christian music movement of the 1970s and 80s. So when they write about Jesus, they are writing with an informed opinion. They know what they're writing about. And they get it right in that song that we giggle about when we hear the lyrics. If I was Jesus, I'd have some real long hair, a robe and some sandals. That'd be what I'd wear. Well, given what we know for the time period, that is correct. I'd be the guy at the party turning water to wine. Me and my disciples, we'd have a real good time. Right again. Jesus' very first miracle was turning water into wine. And one of the accusations made against Jesus that he was, to use a King James phrase, a wine-bibber and a glutton. That's my new favorite word, wine-bibber. Translation, this guy drinks too much, a habit only exceeded by his overeating. Check. If I was Jesus, 
I'd have some friends that were poor. Right. I'd run around with the wrong crowd. Man, I'd never get bored. Right? I'd heal me a blind man. He did. And get myself crucified by politicians and preachers who got something to hide. And that is the most truthful line in the entire song. Ask someone who is a devoted Christian or someone that is nominally Christian. Why did Jesus die? And they will answer something like this. He died for my sins. He died for the world. He died to prove He loves us. He died to take away God's judgment. All of those will be offered as answers. And none of those are correct. Those became the theological reflections and conclusions of the Apostle Paul, the other apostles, the early church. Those serve as faith expressions that we have about Jesus' death. But the particular reason that Jesus died was that He was convicted in a sham of a trial for sedition, for treason. It wasn't the meek and lowly Jesus who was dragged to His death with everyone understanding that He was simply doing God's will and work. No. The opposite of that. Jesus went to the cross after intentionally causing a disturbance in Jerusalem at the most turbulent time of the year to rebuke the corruption of the temple officials and the Roman occupation of Palestine. He knew exactly what would happen and every Jew living for 10,000 square miles knew exactly what would happen. Country preacher doesn't come to town and get in everybody's pocketbook and everybody's business and shut down the religious, social, and political operation without going to the cross. And when he did it, he sealed his fate and everybody in town knew he had sealed his fate. Because what Romans did to insurrectionists, what Romans did to rebels, was string them up on a cross. And that's what they did to Jesus. So let this fact begin to blow your mind because this is the beginning of understanding who Jesus is. More than a carpenter, more than a teacher or a healer. Before He was a storyteller, a parable maker, a theologian or a religious figure, Jesus was a troublemaker. Jesus was a rebel rouser. Jesus was a revolutionary. Jesus was a radical. Jesus was a subversive. Jesus was a problem. So much so that the politicians and preachers had to get together and hatch a plan to get rid of Him. Reading from John chapter 11. It's where the politicians and preachers gather. Jesus has come to town and caused so much disturbance. And one of the politicians says... If we allow this Jesus to go on like this, everyone will believe Him. Then the Roman army will come and destroy our temple and our nation. And then Caiaphas, from politician to preacher, who would preside over the trial of Jesus just days after this, says, don't you realize that it would be better that this man die than the whole nation be destroyed. He wasn't very concerned about the nation, but he sure was concerned about maintaining the status quo 
He was concerned about keeping his seat of power and keeping all the money coming in from the peasants to the church house, making him very, very wealthy. And the politicians and preachers understand that if we are going to survive, it means Jesus can. And the die is cast. So, if you were in fact Jesus, in addition to the long hair, robe, sandals, and penchant for turning water into wine, you would have the heart of a maverick, the talk of an instigator, the swagger of a revolutionary, and the passion of an extremist. But in the words of Martin Luther King, because it takes one to know one, he was an extremist for love, for justice, for correcting what is wrong and standing up for what is right. His was an unstoppable drive to protect the poor, to welcome the stranger, to rebuke power, to challenge the systems of abuse, to condemn corruption, and quoting Dietrich Bonhoeffer, because again, it takes one to know one, to not simply bandage the wounds of victims beneath the wheels of injustice, but to drive a spoke into the wheel of injustice itself. If we embrace Jesus as less than the nonconformist He was, we are embracing too little. Jesus did not come to start a new religion. He came to end religion as we have known it. Jesus did not come to tinker with our ideas about God. He came to show us who God really is. Jesus did not come to build cathedrals or pulpits. He came to start a revolution. Jesus came to launch a new way of life, a new way of being in this world that knocks the props out from underneath everything else we have ever known. And rocks our very foundations. This is the Jesus the gospel writers invite you to know, to believe, and to follow.